Welcome to Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining our daily live call-in broadcast where trusted leaders bring biblical insights to the issues and you can call in and get your questions answered in real time. According to the Bible, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So call in today to get answers, information, and resources to help you stand for truth and effect godly change in our nation and the world. And now here's your host, Richard Harris. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Truth and Liberty Live Call-In Show. I'm Richard Harris. I'm standing in for Andrew Womack today. And uh, today is going to be a phenomenal program because I have as our guest today, live on set, Tim Barton. Tim, it's awesome to have you. Well, I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, well, Tim, uh, guys, you know Tim from, you've seen him on Truth and Liberty so many times, but Tim is the president of Wall Builders, uh, organization founded by your dad, David Barton. Uh, and I can't quote your mission statement, but basically you guys are restoring America's forgotten heritage, our Christian heritage across the country. I tell people that I don't know where we would be in America if it weren't for you guys, for your dad and everything that you all have done to educate us, re-educate us really about who we really are as Americans mm -hmm. and uh, our, our true Christian heritage. So on behalf of everybody, thank you. Thanks again for being here. Uh, well, thank you. It's absolutely our pleasure. Well, Tim, I understand you guys have a new book coming out actually, or it's a, uh, what would you call the next installment That's right. yeah. in the American story. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So we, uh, we had a book come out, uh, I guess in 2020 called the American story. Uh, it was called the American story, the beginnings. And the idea was we wanted to show, kind of tell the honest story of America. Mm -hmm. uh, and show how America came into existence. So starting with Christopher Columbus, all the way through George Washington becoming president, we, we wanted to introduce people to some of the heroes of American history that unfortunately a, a lot of Americans just don't know anymore. We, we don't know their stories. We might know their names and unfortunately now knowing their names, we hear so many negative things mm -hmm. about them. And right. for so many of them, the negative things are not correct. Yes. Right? I, I mean, granted, Nobody's perfect. Everybody's a sinner. We all need a savior. But what we mean is they're not actually guilty of most of the sins they're being accused of. They might be guilty of other sins, just not the ones that culture is saying they did all these evil things, therefore we should cancel them. So we wanted to tell the honest story, introducing people once again to some of these heroes. Uh, we were finishing it in 2019, and that's when the 1619 Project came out. Mm. And so we thought, okay, we, we can't let this dishonest history of America being birthed and rooted and founded in slavery kind of stand, because that's not at all what happened. There were, from the very beginning, there were abolitionists, people fighting against slavery, and, and in fact, in the era of the 1700s, there was not a single nation that did not have slavery. And the founding fathers were the per first political leaders of any nation in the world to begin movements from a political standpoint, to begin legal movements against slavery. America started the political, legal, anti-slavery movement for any other nation in the world. But today, wow. right, we're told there was no evil. We did an evil that everybody else in the world was doing, but we also had political leaders that recognized it was evil before the other political leaders in the world. And we began that movement. In fact, even when slavery was ended in America, it was ended with the 13th Amendment. There were approximately 128 nations in the world at that time, and we were the fourth nation in the world in slavery. So even though people look and go, we didn't end slavery to the Civil War, that is correct. 
However, we were fourth out of 128 nations, which is a pretty good standard. Mm -hmm. And even today, of the 193 member nations that are part of the UN, there's 94 nations that have still not passed laws to criminalize slavery. Mm -hmm. So there's a reason that slavery is still legal in China. Slavery is legal. In so many nations of the world, they have not even gone as far as America has gone 150 plus years ago. And so we thought, we, we just need to tell the whole story. It's not that America didn't do evil, but that evil did not define America. Right. And America began going a different direction. So we, we told that story. All that to say is we, we have, we've wanted to continue that story for a long time. And so this time we are, my dad and I are, God willing, finishing a book. Hopefully <laughs> the end of this year will be out. It's a challenge because the more we research, the more fun stuff we find we want to tell and then figuring out how we can abbreviate it and still do justice to it. So we're going to start with George Washington being president and we're going to go through the, the first seven presidents all the way through Andrew Jackson. Uh, we're calling it Building the Republic because these are the ones they were the political leaders, not, not that did the Declaration of the Constitution per se, although most of them were involved in that to some extent, but it was more of the standard they set of how to be a leader in America, of what they did navigating through wars and, and, and controversies and expansion and learning their stories even as individuals. So God willing, that'll be coming out this Christmas, the American story, building the Republic. Oh, wow, that's exciting. And I've, re I've read the first volume and it really is a great book. Um, such an easy read, uh, but yet it's it's fully cited and backed up, you know, and uh, nobody does it better than you guys as far as uh, having the original stuff to back up what you're saying. And I thought you told me today earlier that you are going to have a curriculum eventually with this yes. series. So I know that uh, educators and homeschool parents out there will be super excited about that. Can you comment uh, yeah, Absolutely. That? Yeah, we have... For decades, people have been asking, can you please, you know, give us curriculum? We, we want something better to help educate our kids. And we have a lot of stories we've told, a lot of articles we've written. We've never done something quite as comprehensive. And so the goal is we're actually, th this is probably going to be a four-part series, The American Story, and then we'll probably do multiple other books telling more and more stories. But we're working with a couple people right now to, to add some curriculum perspective and aspects to it. There are already so many uh, parents, whether they homeschool, Christian school, or even kids in public school, and they want to supplement and mm -hmm. help get some real history to right. the, these kids that probably aren't getting it in their public school. They, they have some, for example, the American story, they have some good books their kids can read, but they want to be able to develop that a little bit more. So we're going to add some curriculum aspects to it, some discussion questions, some quizzes and tests and different things to help, help facilitate that mm -hmm. a little bit better. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, uh, so the, the next volume is not out yet, but where can people get the the current American Story Volume 1 on your website? Yeah, I mean, wallbuilders.com, but also it's it's Amazon. Anywhere you get books, you can probably find the American Story. Okay. But wallbuilders.com is an easy place to get. Yeah. Well, I, I encourage all everybody watching, pick up a copy of that book. I promise you won't regret it. It's very well worth it. Um, it and, and I want to go back to this uh, slavery issue in a little bit, Tim. But first, I want to share some information with our viewers. Uh, I wanted to get let you guys know of a couple of events that are coming up here at the ministry. First, I wanted to tell you about the annual Women Arise Conference. That's scheduled for November 2nd through the 4th here on the campus of Karis Bible College in Woodland Park, uh, Colorado. You can't uh, ask for a more beautiful setting, ladies, for that. Hey guys, uh, sorry to tell you this, but you're not welcome at this event. This is for the women only, and it's going to be a time of encouragement, edification, revelation, and fellowship that you won't want to miss. Uh, Carrie Pickett, who's the Vice President of Karis Outreach here at the ministry. Audrey Mack, one of the greatest uh, preachers in 
anywhere, not, not uh, you know, male and female both. Audrey is phenomenal. Elizabeth Murin, who's the head of the creative ministry here at Andrew Womack Ministries, uh, they're all going to be ministering, so you won't want to miss that. Also, if you live in the Atlanta, Georgia area, or even if you don't and you want to catch Andrew, uh, the Atlanta Gospel Truth Conference is coming up November 9th, 10th, and 11th. It's at the Gas South Convention Center uh, there in the Atlanta metro, and you can register for that free event on, on awmi.net. Greg Fritz will be teaching along with Andrew, so it's going to be a fantastic time and uh, encourage everybody to make it to that. Well, Tim, there's so much in the news today, big stuff. Uh, I don't really know where to start. How about if we pick up again on this slavery thing? Uh, today you were sharing with the students at Karis, and uh, I was really blown away by your presentation. You were showing a copy of the actual first draft, Thomas Jefferson's own handwriting yeah. of the Declaration of Independence. And you were talking about the fact that Jefferson, who's the, the number one criticism that that progressives have against him is that he was a slaveholder, right? right. And, and uh, his relationship with his female slave and all this other stuff. And yet he had as the largest section of all the grievances listed was an anti-slavery grievance yeah. against the King of England. Can you talk more about that? Yes, and I will say What's for everybody the real also uh, watching and listening, uh, there's a great article. There was a professor at the University of Virginia. He was there for over 30 years. He's considered like the Jefferson expert. He wrote an article, I think 2021 called, or titled was Jefferson America's First Abolitionist. Uh, from a political standpoint. And he actually goes through Jefferson's life and just documents all of the anti-slavery things Jefferson did that, to your point, most people today are thinking, but Jefferson owned slaves and that's one of the really big sins and, and stains on his life and career. And this professor points out that actually Jefferson was the one that began the political movement against slavery. And, and you can make a lot of really strong arguments based on laws he passed in Virginia, based on work he did as president. But, but part of what I shared with the, the students today at Karis, and actually I, I have a picture I might try to put up on the screen real quick. Yeah. If we look at the Declaration of Independence specifically, the second paragraph, that the phrase, we owe these truths to be self-evident, yeah. right? That, that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, government strength among men, this is where we get this idea that the founding fathers disagreed about a lot, but they said there's some, some common truth we all agree on, that we're created equal, that, that we have inalienable rights from God, that government secures those rights. And they said these truths were self-evident. Now, the reason they get criticized mostly today is people say, yeah, but they had slaves. Therefore, they didn't really believe in equality. And this is where I always point people back to, go back to what Jefferson actually wrote. Because mm -hmm. if you go back to the original draft, which I can put that, kind of that picture up on the screen as well, on the original draft, there were four pages on the original draft. The first page was a political philosophy. Second page, he starts listing grievances. Third page, he lists grievances. Fourth page, he wraps up the political philosophy. But on the third page, the last grievance was by far the largest grievance of the entire declaration. It was nearly half the, the third page. And if this is the largest grievance, you can make a very solid argument that this is the one that Jefferson cared about the most. And if you, if you read that grievance, it starts off at the top. He has waged cruel war against human nature itself. Now this is talking about the king. The king has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating his most sacred rights of life and liberty and the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. Now already, if, if people are tracking, this is talking about the slave trade. He continued this piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers. Notice the word infidels underlined, identifying that this, this is a non-Christian idea. He says, it's the war warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain. And notice the word Christian. 
is printed and underlined. This is the first word in the declaration that's not in cursive. So he's clearly drawing your attention to it, underlining it, identifying. The king is saying he's a Christian, but he is doing this very evil, unchristian thing. He continued, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. Notice that word men is printed and fully capitalized. Mm -hmm. So Jefferson, the, the, the most important grievance, again, arguing this is the largest grievance. Clearly, he thought this was really important. And what he did was he clarified. When, when he wrote the second paragraph of the Declaration is where he says that all men are created equal. He then clarifies, who are we talking about? Because the argument today is they're all racist. And so when they talked about that all men are created equal, they were only talking about white people. Right. Jefferson actually clarified, no, th th this was all people. Right. And that grievance, the last grievance of the initial draft of the Declaration, it didn't make it to the final draft. But the reason was John Hancock, who was the president of Congress at the time, he said they would only include in the final draft what had been unanimously agreed to, because as he pointed out, if we put things in the Declaration that we don't all agree to, the king might be able to come in and pull us apart by our own local separate interests. So we're only going to include in the final draft what is unanimously agreed to. There were two colonies that did not support that measure. Georgia and South Carolina both said, we've never tried to end the slave trade, and we haven't really even come out against slavery. We don't have that grievance against the king. And, and Jefferson wrote in his journal how sad he was that there weren't more northern abolitionists who were more outspoken trying to convince these southern founders who were pro-slavery in this respect. He, he said if, if they would have been a little stronger, maybe they could have convinced them we could have stopped this evil right there. But the reality was two colonies kept it from being in the final draft of the Declaration. But what, what, what is worth noting, there were 13 original colonies. That means 11 of the 13 actually voted in favor of it. And this is where there's such a disconnect is the vast majority of the founding fathers were actually against slavery. But the way we hear it today is, yeah, but, but most of them owned slaves. At some point in their life, the majority of founding fathers did own slaves. But this is where it now becomes a little dishonest and disingenuous the way history is presented. Because even though the vast majority at some point in their life did own slaves, it doesn't say that's where they ended their life. Mm -hmm. And, and, and you can point to really good examples like a John Jay, who was the original Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He was one of the authors of the Federalist Papers, pretty important founding father. John Jay in 1776 wrote a letter where he identified, he says, it's, it's beginning to occur to many of us that have slaves, because he was a slave owner at the time. He said, it's beginning to occur to us the hypocrisy of our position, mm. that we are fighting for freedom for ourselves while we are enslaving others. He ends up freeing his slaves. He's from New York, ends up freeing his slaves. In 1778, he writes another letter to a friend, and he says that there is now a growing movement of abolition because so many of us are recognizing that if we're fighting for freedom for ourselves, it'd be hypocritical not to free our slaves. Not only does John Jay free his slaves, John Jay became the founder of the New York Abolition Society, seeking to end slavery in all of New York. And this is where if people actually knew the story of the Founding Fathers, mm -hmm. they would recognize that even though at one point in time the majority of Founding Fathers did own slaves, which again, just context and perspective, that made them normal for the world in that era. Because you cannot find a nation anywhere in the world at that time where the political leaders of that nation did not own slaves. That, that, that if you had money and power, that's what you did back then. Mm -hmm. The Founding Fathers were the first ones to go, you know what, I think that's a bad idea. Maybe we shouldn't do this. They began the political and legal movement against not just a slave trade, but slavery in general. And 
when we separated from Great Britain, even though that final, or that, that, that anti-slavery grievance didn't make it in the final draft, every single northern colony began passing anti-slavery laws. And by 1804, every single northern colony had passed laws for the abolition of slavery, which made it the first major region anywhere in the world to effectively ban slavery. Wow, wow, that's incredible. Uh, maybe one of your next books needs to be The True History on America's Fight to End Slavery, yeah. right? There's a lot there. There is a lot there, and it's incredible, and I feel like maybe we're only scratching the surface here. But this, this uh, issue of revisionist history is a real problem in America today, and that's why what you guys are doing is so important. But I want to kind of uh, first take a second and remind our viewers this is a live call-in show. If you've got questions for Tim today, uh, either they can be Bible questions or history questions or political questions, whatever they might be, please, we want to hear from you. Just call into our uh, phone line at 719-619-2341. The lines are open, and uh, so uh, get in line uh, now. And also I wanted to mention that if you're in need of prayer today, that we have uh, trained, a Word of God trained, Spirit-filled uh, prayer minister standing by. Andrew's prayer line is 24-7 now, and you can call into that number at 719-635-1111, and someone will uh, join their faith with yours and agree in prayer with you today. Well, Tim, uh, let's, let's fast forward here, you know, 200 and something years. Um, we've got some important stuff happening today. Uh, I want to talk about the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Yes. Amazing news today uh, that Mike Johnson, a congressman from Louisiana, was elected, it looks like unanimously by the Republican caucus, with the, not counting those who weren't there, uh, to be the next speaker. So that's good news, isn't it? It's incredible news. And, and people need to know that especially for, for faith-filled conservatives, mm -hmm. for Christians, this is the guy we've been praying for. Wow. I mean, genuinely, this is the guy. But before he was a state legislator in Louisiana, he was a state legislator, then he was a congressman, but before he was in the state legislature of Louisiana, he was a religious liberty attorney, meaning he was an attorney defending religious liberty. He actually worked for Alliance Defending Freedom, who is one of the major organizations fighting to defend people's rights, freedoms, under the Constitution, he also is an adjunct professor at the law school at Liberty University, uh, and he teaches con law, so teaches the way Constitution is supposed to operate. So this is a religious liberty attorney who understands the Constitution, and he has been one of the most outspoken when it comes to matters of faith in Washington, D.C., as they do so many meetings. He, he's a part of some pretty major committees already before becoming speaker, but he was also very well known that if they're going to start a meeting, that he's the guy that you go to to ask to open the meeting in prayer. Because he, he was so open about his faith, yeah. he, he genuinely is the kind of person we've been praying for. And he definitely is going to have his challenges because it's a, it's a very divided Congress right now. Uh, it, I mean, very partisan Congress. And even there's some Republicans that don't have the same conservative values that mm -hmm. he does. It's going to be tough for him to navigate. But if we were praying for someone to be in that position to navigate, he would be the kind of person we are praying for. Being from Louisiana, that's where Steve Scalise is from. He was a friend of Steve Scalise now for, I don't know, two decades maybe. He's known Steve for a long time. Steve helped mentor him when he was a state legislator. When he got to Congress, uh, Jim Jordan was then a mentor for him in Congress. And so some of the more conservative, outspoken individuals in Congress already to this point have been his mentors and friends along the way. Uh, they've now been supporting him and his journey to being speaker. So there is a lot of really positive news. And especially as Christians, we should find encouragement in this because as we see 
a, a Biden administration at times and we're going, what is going on? We wish there were more people with backbone taking a stand. This is the kind of guy who has backbone and will take a stand. He's also very strategic. And so he's going to try to find a way to work with people. And, and I think he's likable enough that probably even he'll get some Democrats at times supporting some of what's going on. I, I know even today they were working on a measure to condemn Hamas and the attack on Israel. And there was a big debate on the floor about should we condemn Hamas as crazy as that is. But he said this is one of the first things we are going to do because he from a value perspective, he recognizes the things that truly are important. And one of the things he understands is that Israel is one of our greatest allies, period. Mm -hmm. But especially they're our main ally in the Middle East. And when you look at some of the issues arising in the Middle East with Iran, among many other things, we want to have good allies there yeah. for the safety of American citizens abroad, for the safety of America not dealing with future terrorist attacks. And he is pretty clear that we're going to stand for Israel. Well, that's a, a diplomatic perspective, but I can tell you he's a Christian. He's also really clear mm -hmm. that he understands that God said, I will bless those that bless you and mm -hmm. I will curse those that curse you. And because he wants America to be blessed, he wants to make sure America takes the right stand, even from a biblical perspective, which is even more remarkable to me. Wow. Wow. So a conservative, truly born again, uh, Christian defender of religious liberty, pro-life, yes. pro-Israel is now the third in line for the presidency of the United States. So this is awesome news that we need to be giving glory to God for. Now, here's a question I've got for you. So. Donald Trump, you know, if he becomes president, we don't know. There's a lot of hurdles he's still got to clear legally and other things like this to who knows what's going to happen there. But uh, I'm concerned, Tim, that Trump has signaled now several times that he may support legislation at a federal level to uh, protect abortion rights at some level. Mm -hmm. In other words, some kind of compromise between an absolute ban and um, uh, you know abortion till birth. Who knows what that is, because right. I don't think he's articulated that, but he criticized the Florida heartbeat bill. Uh, I was at the FRC conference and he was saying, we need to come to an agreement as a right. country. Um, but, but if Mike Johnson can hold on to the speakership even yes. during the next presidency, would that be an important uh, roadblock to any agenda to uh, compromise on abortion? It, it absolutely would, uh, which it, in fairness, if we back up to President Trump, President Trump doesn't really know what he believes on the issue either. Uh, and I, I don't mean that in a critical sense, right? I'm not trying to throw him under the bus in any regards, but he often thinks very pragmatically and he's thinking, how can we bring the nation together? And, and so let's find a common ground. Well, on the issue of do you murder unborn children or not, there's not a lot of compromise in my mind. Right. Right. Like that, right. that's not that complicated of an that's issue. Right. But President Trump doesn't have the same biblical worldview mm -hmm. that we would have, right. that probably most people watching and listening to us right now would have. And so he navigates it from a different perspective. To Mike Johnson specifically, I was actually on a call with him this weekend mm -hmm. and this issue came up oh, wow. and he was talking about in the house, what could they or might they do? Because, and they referenced right, President Trump saying maybe there ought to be something done. And he said, what he can tell you is, he said, what I, what I can tell you guys, and there was just a couple of us on the call. He said, there, there are some strategic decisions you can make. He said, I understand ultimately the end goal is just for me, I want abortion totally gone. He says, I think federally, right, that the role of the government is to protect our God-given rights, the first among those being the right to life. So the role of the government should be protecting life, 
entirely including unborn life. He said, but I also recognize that if, if you can take an abortion ban and say no abortions after 20 weeks, and then you can take it to 12 weeks, and then you can take it to eight weeks. He said, we need to take every step we can take until we finish abortion as a whole in this nation. He said, that's my commitment, but I, I recognize that not all members of Congress are gonna agree with me on this. So I'm okay with incremental steps as long as it's going the right direction. The reason that's important is because he's not going to take an incremental step in the wrong direction. Right. Well, and it's important, too, that he doesn't pass a law that binds the states to a pro-abortion Correct. Uh, uh, policy. Right. Correct. So, so that states are free to restrict abortion further than the federal government but not allow abortion yes. beyond the federal minimum. And, and I know we would, we would share sentiments on this. I think abortion is no different than the issue of slavery, mm -hmm. right? Because this is, what, this is what many states in the South argued. It's a state's rights issue. We should be able to determine slavery for ourselves. And they said, no, it's not the way it works because we respect the dignity of human life in America. That was part of the argument of the abolitionists. We're all created equal. I think abortion is a very similar issue, which mm -hmm. is also very interesting. If you go back and you read the Dred Scott decision, and then you read some of the modern pro-abortion people today, where they talk about these are things that don't have, right, the value of life, and they don't, like, I mean, it's, you can't always tell. Are they right. talking, like, was this a pro-slavery person from the 1840s, or is this a pro-abortion person from 2020? Mm. It's the exact same argument they are making, mm -hmm. is that these these things are not full humans. are not deserving yeah. of right full human rights in America. With that being said, again, this is where I would I would argue that with the state's rights thought, the, the federal government has said that there is no constitutional inalienable right to abortion, but there is a constitutional inalienable right to life. Mm -hmm. So this, in my mind, this is like this is. The government does a lot of things they're not supposed to do. This is actually one you're supposed to do. Right. You're supposed to protect life, and that includes unborn life. Now, the debate then is when does life actually begin, and that could be an interesting debate, right? Is it conception? Is it heartbeat? But the bottom line is it should not be a dispute that an unborn child is a life. Right. That, that is not where the debate lies. Right. And it's not where it should lie, at least. Yeah, absolutely. Well, folks, uh, this is a Truth and Liberty live call-in show. I'm Richard Harris. And uh, our guest today is Tim Barton, president of Wall Builders. And uh, his uh, resume is super long, so I'm not going to be able to give that to you today. But I do want to encourage all of you, uh, if you've never gone on the Wall Builders website, uh, you definitely need to do that. They have have a treasure trove of resources, DVD series, books, uh, get their emails. Uh, uh, you've got a radio show that you guys do, we do. as well. Uh, tell us about that. Where, where it, it's available it? anywhere you, you get podcasts. So yeah, podcasts, it, it's, okay. it's aired on over 400 stations, but obviously it, you, you can get a podcast on any platform that you listen to it. Uh, and we do it every day covering, uh, covering Political, cultural events from a biblical, historical, and constitutional perspective. Every day. And yet, Every day. Man, I don't know how you guys do it all. It's amazing. Uh, but, but check out Wall Builders today. And also, this is a live call-in show, so if you want to ask, ask questions of Tim, please call in. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. 719-619-2341. So, Tim, I also want to tee up, and we're going to have to take a break in a minute 45, so we'll come back if you don't finish. But I want to tee up this huge question to me, which is the role of pastors today. Yeah. 
and is the church engaged in the culture, um, I, I don't know, uh, enough at a level, you know, commensurate with our founding? Ha, ha, compare pastors' attitudes today about politics, government, getting involved in the public square to what it was like in the founding era. Yeah, so we're definitely going to have to address some of this after break, yeah. but I mean, real quickly, it's easy to, to give it's some level of context. So in early America, you had to go to school longer if you're going to be a pastor than you were a doctor. Wow. So you were higher level of academic training as a pastor and in certain denominations, like for example, early on when George Whitfield was one of the leaders and founders of the Methodist denomination, if you were going to be a Methodist pastor in good standing, you were required to read between four and seven books a week because they thought pastors need to be the best informed so that no matter what issue comes up, pastors can say, okay, well, here's what the issue is. And then contrast with what does the word of God say? Today, we have a lot of pastors who don't want to touch any of the current or cultural issues mm -hmm. and not give that perspective. The reason pastors did it back then is they wanted people to think biblically about the issue. So they said, here's what the issue is. Here's what the Bible says about it. And even though I think a lot of pastors would say, we want people to think biblically about the issue today, I think they're scared to touch some of the cultural issues that are hot topics, whether it's they don't want to offend people or maybe sometimes they don't feel qualified to speak to these issues. I don't know enough about it. But the bottom line is they're not addressing the issues like pastors in early America used to. Yeah, and so that, that's awesome. So we're gonna, we're gonna come back to this subject because there's some uh, historical information that I think Tim's gonna share that is gonna blow you away and we all need to hear this. So we're gonna be back in about 90 seconds, gonna share some information with you right now and we'll be back right after that. With practical government, you have experts in the fields that are sharing their perspective, wisdom and experience. It's not available anywhere else in the world. We're going to teach a Christian heritage of our American government. They're going to learn about the Founding Fathers. We're teaching the Constitution, how government operates, practical skills, and field study. No matter where you're coming from, the world needs you. Whatever God's calling you to do, you're able to do it. To learn more, visit practicalgovernmentschool.com. At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we work to unify, educate, and mobilize the body of Christ to change nations. That's why I want to encourage you to go to our website at truthandliberty.net and subscribe so that you can begin receiving regular updates uh, about our show, news items, action alerts, blog posts, and much, much more. Uh, all you have to do is go to the website, click subscribe, share your email address, and you'll begin to be equipped to stand for truth in the public square. Hi, my name is Carrie Pickett, and like many of you, I wear lots of hats. But most of all, I'm a child of God. Ever since I was young, my desire has been to share the unconditional love of God. There is nothing more rewarding to me than people changing their lives and then changing the world. That's why I'm inviting you to join me wherever you are, and let's discover together these foundational truths that will transform your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Truth and Liberty live call-in show. And again, if you're just joining us, I'm Richard Harris and this is Tim Barton, president of Wall Builders with us. And we've just been having this amazing conversation, Tim. I learn stuff every time I'm around you. Uh, uh, and we're, we're talking right now about the role of pastors in equipping Christians in the church really to get involved, uh, speaking out on issues of culture and, you know, politics, not just politics, but everything related to public life and the public square. It seems like today that, like you were alluding to, lots of, lots of pastors are really hesitant to do that for various reasons. And, uh, it, uh, but that's not how it was when right. our country was birthed. Can you comment more on that? A absolutely. So, the, historically, there's a lot of 
of great research has been done on the, the, the leading influencers in early America. In fact, uh, for those that are watching online, I'll, I'll put up a picture too so you guys can see this. Um, if you go back to even the 1950s, there was a man named Clinton Rossiter. He was the, uh, or a professor at Cornell University. Uh, they actually have the endowed history chairs, the Cornell Chair of History, uh, or excuse me, the, the Rossiter Chair of History at Cornell University. Mm -hmm. But he wrote a book back in, around the 1950s called The Seed Time of the Republic. And he identified all of the ideas that led to American independence, all these thoughts, they came from six main people. He said Benjamin Franklin, Richard Bland, the Reverend Thomas Hooker, the Reverend Roger Williams, the Reverend John Wise, and the Reverend Jonathan Mayhew. Those were the people that had the majority of the ideas that birthed independence, that birthed freedom, that, that led to the Declaration of Independence. And he actually goes through and documents this. And so you might disagree with him, but he actually has evidence supporting all these claims. And it's already worth noting when he says these are the six people coming up with the majority of ideas, four of them are pastors. Right. That's so, what stands out there on that list. Right. That, that's already a really good start. When, when you're talking about the most influential thought leaders at that time, and the majority of them are pastors, that, that says something already. To give even deeper understanding, if you take one of those pastors as an example, the Reverend John Wise is a fun example. He was a pastor from Ipswich, Massachusetts in the late, seven, or late 1600s, early 1700s. And he had a book of sermons come out in 1717. Uh, and in this book of sermons that came out, he had a couple of sermons specifically, two of them. And in one of those sermons, he preached that taxation without representation was tyranny. He also taught that God's preferred form of government was the consent of the government. And then he further went on and said that all men are created equal and they have inalienable rights given to them by their creator. Now, all of those are actual phrases, phrases. in the yeah. Declaration of Independence. How in the world did a pastor from 1717 have phrases that made it in the Declaration? The reason is because his book of sermons, specifically those two sermons, were reprinted in 1772 by the Sons of Liberty. Wow. Because as, as the Sons of Liberty were trying to rally Americans to get us all on the same page, they said, there's something you need to read. You need to understand where do your rights come from? What is the role of government? And they literally passed out a pastor's sermons and when the Founding Fathers come together in 1776, what is worth identifying is that for, for historians that have been able to go through and find the, the libraries and collections of, of writings that these founders maintained, it's remarkable how many of them had these sermons of John Wise in their library. What that means is not only had they read these sermons, they kept these sermons. When they come together in 1776 and they're coming up with these ideas for the Declaration, these are people who have actually read and been influenced by these sermons of a pastor named John Wise from Ipswich, Massachusetts. And, and he's not the only pastor that influenced them, but this is an example of a pastor influencing them. And what happens so often in early America is a pastor would see an issue happening in culture. And a pastor, it, almost strategically, if something big was in the news, the pastors would say, hey, this Sunday, we're talking about this topic. Why? Mm -hmm. Because they knew if everybody's talking about this, we want to make sure that people are thinking biblically on this issue. Mm -hmm. So for example, right, right now, there's this issue in Israel with Hamas in Israel. This would be a topic that in early America, every pastor, or at least the majority of pastors, would say, hey guys, this Sunday, let's talk about Israel. Let's talk about the role of Israel and the nation of Israel and what God has said about Israel and about those that support Israel and those that oppose Israel. And, and let's talk about what does Hamas believe? They're, when their actual written stated objectives, not, not conjecture, they actually wrote down, Hamas wrote down that one of their stated objectives is to kill the Jews. Yeah. Now, right. 
Right, like th th this, th at this point, this is not a complicated topic, it would seem, for pastors to say, hey guys, right? Uh -huh. Some clarity on this issue. God's been very clear in Israel. Hamas is very clear in their position, but, but the point was in early America, whatever was happening in the news, whatever happened in culture, we can point back to so many examples of pastors saying, here's what the Bible says that issue. The reason it matters is because more than a dozen years before we even get to the declaration in 1776, by 1763, every major issue that appeared in the Declaration had already been preached from American pulpits. Wow. By 1763, and there's actually a lady who was a professor at Duke University, her name is Alice Baldwin. She's the one that documented and goes through all these sermons, where all these ideas come from. And the reason I want to point that out is, if someone's listening going, wait a second, where can I find that? Alice Baldwin, she wrote a book called The New England Clergy and the American Revolution, mm -hmm. and she documents this in her book. But the reason that also matters, she was a professor back in the 1930s, 40s, and early 50s. But the reason this matters is people from previous generations, they used to know this history a lot better. Right. They, right. they, they used to understand the role of the pastor. In the modern era, we have so changed the idea of the role of the pastor, that it, which actually you talked about this some at, at even at school today with yeah. the students. And actually, uh, last year we got to do some traveling and speaking together. Yeah. It was so fun. And you hit this a lot mm -hmm. where the modern perspective has changed from what it used to be. Right. Right. So, so America, I think uh, we're starting to, to, everybody's hearing this phrase, black robe regiment now. Um, and so that's becoming popular among conservative Christians. But what is the black robed regiment? Where did that come from? What's that referring to? So specifically in the American Revolution, pretty much every pastor, regardless of denomination, they wore black clerical robes. Right. And in so many situations when, for example, when the British go to Lexington and you have the shot heard around the world, the people of Lexington, there was a little over 80 members of the town who showed up. They opposed between somewhere of 700 to 800 British soldiers. But all of those men were from the church of the Reverend Jonas Clark. The night before when Paul Revere arrives in Lexington, he's writing to warn John Hancock and Sam Adams, hey, the British are coming. And specifically, the British had an order that they were to bring back the bodies of John Hancock and Sam Adams and then to seize all of the military supplies, all the munitions, the guns and the gunpowder from Lexington and Concord. Paul Revere rides warning them, guys, the British are coming. John Hancock, Sam Adams, you got to get out of here. They were actually at the home of the Reverend Jonas Clark. When they find out the British are coming, Hancock and Adams turn to Reverend Clark, who was one of their friends, and says, Pastor, if, if the British are coming and they're coming to disarm the people, if they disarm the people, we will never be able to tell the king no again. Right? The, the only reason we can have any kind of voice is because he, he can't trample us and run over us, which for those of us that have studied history on any level whatsoever, you can go to the 20th century alone and know that every dictator, one of the first moves they yes. make is you disarm the people. That's right. Well, that's what King George was trying to do. King George III disarming the American people. Paul Revere is there with Hancock, Adams, Jonas Clark, and Adams and Hancock asked Jonas Clark, if the British show up in the morning, will your people acquiesce or, or will, they, will they have the courage to stand? And the records say that Jonas Clark got a little offended. And he said, of course they'll stand. I've been training them for this very moment. Well, the next morning they did stand. And Captain Jonas- Very courageously. Very, when you're outnumbered 10 to one, yeah. it's incredibly courageous. Uh, Captain John Parker was the, the military leader of the militia that day. He was an elder from Jonas Clark's church. 
And he told the men that we will not fire unless fired upon, but if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. What was significant is the British then, when they leave Lexington, they go to Concord. At Concord, there's 300 Americans that face them at Concord, but all 300 Americans were from the church of the Reverend William Emerson. They then leave and they march back to Boston. On the way back to Boston, there's between four to 5,000 Americans that are engaging them on the road back to Boston. And nearly all of the Americans, they were members of a church and they were being led by their pastor, the Reverend Benjamin Baltz, Reverend Payson Phillips. Uh, when you get back to the Battle of Bunker Hill, the Reverend Joseph Willard had two full companies at the Battle of Bunker Hill. The British begin to identify. Mm. All of these men are showing up by their pastor's leadership. Mm -hmm. And they said, if we can stop the pastors, we might can stop some of this insurrection. And they begin to call the pastors the black robed regiment wow. because they were wearing black clerical robes. At, now, they didn't always wear them in a battle, right? But this was a defining characteristic of the pastors. They wore black clerical robes. That is where that name originates. It's the British blaming the pastor saying, if we can stop the pastors, we might can stop this rebellion. Yeah. Well. The fact that they identified pastors as the most significant instigators and leaders mm -hmm. also says a lot about what early America was like and what these pastors were like, that they're not afraid of offending some governing leader. Mm -hmm. They're much more in the camp of a Daniel, of a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? That, hey, you throw me in the fiery furnace, I'm not stopping doing what God's called me to do. Mm -hmm. There are some really great historic examples as well. Uh, there's a, a, a man from New Jersey, uh, the Reverend Caldwell. He was considered one of the leaders of the forces of New Jersey. Uh, it was actually reported at one point that they offered him the leadership of the militia of New Jersey, and he turned it down because he said, no, I, I, I'm a pastor at heart, right? He said, but I'm with you in everything we do. He became so influential in New Jersey that there was actually an assassination order an attempt on him. Uh, they showed up at his home. His family was eating dinner. They fired into his home. Wow. And actually one of the shots killed his wife. Oh, wow. Um, they then set fire to the home. His wife, dead body was inside the home. One of the neighbors came over, was able to rescue the wife. Uh, and then he's, he has to be on the run. They're targeting him. Uh, at one point he, uh, and he still preached every Sunday, but often it was wherever the militia was, you know, on that given mm -hmm. week. But he knew his job was to be the spiritual leader for this militia, for these troops. So he would still preach. But one day it was reported that he got up in the pulpit of a church in a town and he opened up his Bible, but then he drew a pistol and put it beside his Bible. He drew a second pistol, put it on the other side of his Bible. He looked up and told the congregation, he said, the British will not stop me from preaching, but they are welcome to try. <laughs> it, it, the, That's great. Right? This is the tone of <laughs> yeah. early America. The, the pastors were incredibly courageous leaders who were willing to take a stand for what they believed to be a biblical perspective, and they weren't going to allow some tyrant to come in and take away what they believed were their God-given rights, was their biblical role as pastors, as citizens, which also part of this perspective, for people that wrap their heads around some of this history, is for, for the founding fathers, one of the reasons that they, they accepted the war was because it, it became a defensive war for them. They, they, it was quite intentional. When, when Parker told the men at Lexington Green, do not fire unless fired upon, they understood what's called just war theory, mm -hmm. that God has not given us permission to go on offense against people, but God has given us permission to defend ourselves if our wife, our kids, right, our life is threatened. We have a biblical right of self-defense. Now, we don't have to exert that right, 
but it's certainly certainly a biblical position that you can defend yourself. It's something God put in nature. It's the the law of self-preservation. It's one of the laws of nature. Right. And and this is something that they recognize because the British have fired upon us. And then to go further, before the revolution even unfolds, King George III had suspended all of the rights of the American colonists as British citizens. He said, nope, you don't get any rights anymore. So, so he is genuinely taking away all of their rights as citizens. He's not recognizing their God-given rights. He's now firing upon them. And so this is why it became very easy and morally clear for pastors to say, we're gonna stand up against this tyranny because this is clearly not what godly leadership should look like. Right, right. Oh, that's amazing. There's so many ways. Uh, I, want, I want to ask you later about the, the Second Amendment uh, implications here of the, the British seizing the weapons, like you were talking about at, at um, Concord and Lexington. But before we get there, let's, let's take a couple questions, shall we? We've got some callers on the line. Uh, Frank from Missouri is uh, on the phone. And Frank, thanks for calling in. We really appreciate it. What's your question for Tim Barton? Uh, howdy, howdy. Glad to hear you guys. It's kind of tough to keep, uh, keep up with this young guy. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> anyways, anyways, thank you for, for having me on. Uh, it's kind of a follow-up question from yesterday that I asked about the, uh, and I got a really good answer, and I'm, I'm Wikipedia in this stuff. And so my, my question today is about the Bible, and it's about uh, the Jefferson Bible that, uh, is it true that 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 Jefferson cut out all of the supernatural uh, places, the uh, feeding of the five thousand, water into wine, the uh, uh, yeah, all the miracles, anything that was supernatural that he didn't like, he cut it out, and uh, so he ended up with the Jefferson Bible. And is that the Bible that they swear on in the inaugural address or or whatever that they swear the president of the United States in? And uh, and if it is, they're swearing on the wrong Bible, I, I think. Well, yes, and first of all, thanks for calling in. I, I apologize for talking so quickly. Uh, hopefully it's still understandable. Uh, first of all, what most presidents do is they choose to swear in on a Bible that was owned either by George Washington or by Abraham Lincoln. Some of them use their own Bible as well. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower used a Bible that his mother gave him. And so presidents can choose what Bible they use. To my knowledge, nobody's ever been sworn in on what has become known as the Jefferson Bible. Now that's important to clarify, it's what's become known as the Jefferson Bible because Jefferson did not call it a Bible and it was not intended to be a Bible. It was a work he did in 1820 and it, it, the title of the document, this is something you actually can, can find the actual cover page online. It's called The Life and Moral Teachings of Jesus. And Jefferson was a student of philosophy. Uh, Jefferson was very intellectual, was a genuinely a brilliant individual. And he studied so many philosophers. Jefferson said there's no greater philosopher or moral teacher than Jesus. And he said, we would do better if we studied the teachings of Jesus. What Jefferson did is he went through the New Testament and he went through the four gospels and he cut out the major moral teachings of Jesus and he studied those every night. He, had, he actually uh, had a portfolio. He did in four languages, he would study those. Uh, I believe it was English, Latin, 
uh, Greek and French, I believe. I'd have to go back and confirm that Zoe 4, but it was four languages. And he would, he would study these moral teachings every night before he go to bed. And this is also, this is six years before he died. So this is very late in his life. Up to this point, he's already supported numerous Bible societies. Uh, he's funded Bible societies. Uh, as president, he promoted and encouraged people to read the Bible, actually encouraged Bibles to be given to the Indians to, to use and uh, trying to lead them to Christ in salvation. So he's already shown himself to be a, a supporter of the entire Bible, not just a portion of the Bible. But what happened is when, when Jefferson died, uh, his grandson went through and found some of the writings and papers, and they found the, the writings from Jefferson. And again, this wasn't called the Jefferson Bible. Jefferson titled it, The Life and Moral Teachings of Jesus. And then on the cover page, she went through and identified a hundred something uh, passages in the four gospels that were considered moral teachings of Jesus. And that's what he pasted in his portfolio in four languages. Unfortunately, the original copy does not exist anymore, but they do have copies of the title page and of all of the outlines of the verses of what he said he was going to include. That survived, there was a fire, and so that's part of what happened is it got burned in the fire. But from the verses that he said he was going to include in this portfolio, and by the way, the reason we know it was in four languages is he said he would read it every night in those four languages. So we know it was a portfolio, four languages, moral teachings. And in those outline of verses, it actually has verses where it talked about heaven and hell. It talked about angels and demons, and it included some of the miracles of Jesus. It did not include all the miracles, but the, the point of, of this kind of portfolio was for Jefferson City, the moral teachings of Jesus, not for him to recreate a new Bible. Well, all that to say, his grandson found it uh, after he died, and the Smithsonian said, this is amazing. Could we buy it from you? We want to preserve it in our collection. So the grandson, I don't remember if he sold it or gave it to the Smithsonian. Either way, the Smithsonian got it. There was a congressman who found out the Smithsonian had this, and the congressman was a Christian. And the congressman thought, you know what would be great is if every congressman would read and study the moral teachings of Jesus. And strategically, he thought, if, if, if we use the work Jefferson did, then we could say, hey, this, this isn't the Bible, right? This is the work Jefferson did, and we can be just like Thomas Jefferson and study the moral teachings of Jesus. That book was printed, 5,000 copies were initially printed, and it was printed with the intent and design to give one to every member of Congress. So every two years there's freshman congressmen elected, it was given to Congress. When it came out in 1902, and it was first given to the congressmen, when it was introduced to the congressmen, they said, here is, is a copy of Jefferson's Bible so you can study the moral teachings of Jesus for yourself. That's when it got the name, the Jefferson Bible. Jefferson never called it a Bible. The title of it's not called the Jefferson Bible. It's called the Life and Moral Teachings of Jesus. And it's only been in the modern era that it's been called the Jefferson Bible. And then modern people that think Jefferson was really secular and anti-religious and anti-God and Christian, they then said, oh, you know why Jefferson didn't include miracles? Because he didn't believe in the supernatural. Mm. Again, that is not what Jefferson said or what he wrote, but that is what people begin to say and one of the things we, we know is if you repeat a lie long enough, people believe it. And there can be very well-intentioned people that have bad information and therefore they continue to teach incorrect history. 
I would encourage you, you actually, again, this is something that you can do a search online. Look for the life and moral teachings of Jesus. You can find the cover page. You can find the list of all those verses. And then from those verses, I would encourage, this could be a fun Bible study. Go back and look up all those verses and see what were the teachings that Jefferson studied every night of his life, the last six years, six years of his life before he died. And you will discover it's, it's not quite what people say it is today, but again, the intent was not for it to be his own Bible. It was for him to study specifically the moral teachings of Jesus. Wow, that's amazing. So, uh, you know, I remember one time I had a, I was going to lunch with a couple of my law partners and, uh, and they were liberals and one of them got to arguing about, he didn't want God in our schools and he used the Jefferson Bible as he called it. He said, you know, the Jefferson cut out all the miraculous. I was so uninformed then, I didn't have any idea. I didn't know what to say to him, but that's really great to know that. And, um, you know, um, it's amazing. The, I think it was Andrew Jackson, wasn't it, Tim, who said the Bible is the rock on which our republic yes. rests. Um, how, how important is uh, the Bible really, just wrap this up, to the founding of our nation and the principles that, that America was built on? Um, are, are we a secularist nation, you know, uh, uh, like France, or are we something very different than that? Yeah, well, I, I think certainly there are people in political power today that are trying to make us a secularist nation. Right. But that was never the way we were founded. That wasn't the intent of the founding fathers. Uh, there's a, a group of professors uh, years ago, they, they did a deep, like decade long research project. Uh, and then they wrote a book. What they're finding is it's called the origins of American constitutionalism. And what they wanted to see was what were the, what were the, the most significant influences on the founding fathers? And so they, they thought if we go through about 15,000 of representative writings, if we can find quotes and then we can find who they were quoting, we can see what was the greatest influences on them. And so these professors went through and they found thousands and thousands of quotes. And after, again, like a decade, they're like, okay, we didn't make it through 15,000 writings, but we've gone through enough. We, we can conclusively say who were the main influences on the founding fathers. And the, the number one individual was Charles Montesquieu. 8.3% of all the quotes they found came from him. Uh, William Blackstone was the second most cited individual. Uh, he did the commentaries and laws of England. John Locke was the third most cited. 2.9% uh, of the quotes came from him. Well, that's the first, second, and third most cited individuals. But what they discovered was the most cited source. 34% of all the quotes in the founders' writings came from the Bible. And... What's even more remarkable is these founders or these uh, professors said in setting the founders' writings, they only included the things that were in quotation marks in their study. Oh, and wow. they said that there were so many times that they would quote or reference verses that were not in quotation marks, so it could not be included in their study. They said, had we included the other pa phrases or passages that we knew were verses, the number would have been significantly higher than 34%. So when you look at the most influential source in the Founding Fathers being the Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of them were Christians, but it's very clear the most influential source on every Founding Father was the Bible. When you go through why, why did they do the things they did, where did they come up with these ideas, and you look at things in the Constitution. Whether it's that we have a separation of powers and you have John Adams and, and Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and George Washington all said that we cannot centralize power because the heart of man is wicked and deceitful mm -hmm. and it can't be trusted. Mm -hmm. Where do we come with the idea the heart of man is wicked and deceitful? Right. It's Jeremiah 17, 9. Yeah. Right. Literally, they're explaining the reason we did this 
In their own writings, they're quoting the Bible as the reason for much of what they did in early America. The, the, the reason that if, if you commit a crime that results in, in capital punishment, it says you can only be put to death on two or more witnesses. Mm -hmm. Why? That's the biblical standard, Yeah. right? It's not on one witness, right out it's of the law two of or more. It's yeah. exactly out of the law of Moses. And it's again worth pointing out to people, as they're doing this, this is not an era when, when people are doing what the founding fathers are doing. The founding fathers are doing things that are very unique for that time. Why are they doing it that way? It's because it's what they have learned and seen from the Bible, which also to make a kind of full circle connection, it's also what they learned from their pastors. Mm -hmm because pastors were talking about this kind of stuff. So then it's not hard for the founding fathers who also were students of the word, right? It wasn't just their pastor saying this. The founding fathers, one of the very common practices in that era is they would read through the Bible at least once a year, cover to cover. There's founding fathers that talk about having read through the Bible more than 50 times and still learning new things from reading through the Bible, Praise which is just Lord. so fun to think about, which yeah. we know as Christians it's true, right. right? You can read through it over and over. God will continue to give you new revelation, That's right. That's new right. depths of understanding from who he is and how his kingdom operates. But the point is the founding fathers were so open about this, that this, this didn't used to be a question thing. So even when you guys come to Andrew Jackson, who was a quote from a moment ago, Andrew Jackson, when he was president, he identified and said that the Bible is the rock upon which our Republic rests. At that time, Andrew Jackson arguably was not a Christian. Mm -hmm. he, he has a conversion later in life once he leaves the presidency, but you're talking about now, even for non-Christians, they identified and recognized what was the foundation of America. The foundation of America was the Bible. Oh, that's amazing, isn't it? All right. So uh, we're talking here with Tim Barton on the Truth and Liberty Live Call-In Show. I'm Richard Harris. We're taking calls, uh, answering questions, giving you a whirlwind tour of American history and the Christian foundations of our country. Um, you know, it's amazing to me that people today say with all sincerity and conviction that America is <clears throat> was never a Christian nation, that the Constitution is a secularist document. And yet the evidence, if they took the time to actually go to original sources is is literally overwhelmingly clear but uh, aren't we blessed here guys to have access to such information and it's awesome we're gonna be taking a break when we get back I still want to cover uh, the Second Amendment I want to come back to that that's not even in my notes but I want to talk about it and then also Israel mm. let's dive back into Israel when we get back and what's going on there today how it ties into uh, the Bible uh, and to some even more recent history of the, the birth of Israel rebirth as a nation and some other things like that so again if you've got questions for Tim, uh, please call into our number at 719-619-2341. Uh, we would love to hear from you today. This is the Truth and Liberty Live Calling Show, and uh, we're going to go to a break now and be back in about 90 seconds. Andrew has many conferences and seminars around the globe each year. For the latest information on Andrew's complete speaking schedule, visit our website at awmi.net slash events. created with a purpose, written in the heart of God, long before you were born. He is calling you to find it. We want to help you experience His unconditional love, to be equipped and empowered to become a world changer. 
Hey, you know, a big part of what we do here at Truth and Liberty is to provide you with the resources that you need in order to stand for truth in the public square. So I want to remind everybody to go to our website and check out our resources page at truthandliberty.net slash resources, where you can find material that discusses just about every issue we're facing today in our culture. And these are things that are prepared by our strategic partners and some of the uh, most influential and important organizations in America today. Okay, we're back here on Truth and Liberty, and it's great to have all of you watching today. Uh, it's a really special show as Tim Barton is live and on set with us here in Woodland Park, Colorado, and we're just having the most amazing conversation about American history. Uh, we do have a caller on the line. I want to go ahead and take this uh, before we dive back into some of these subjects, Tim, but uh, AJ from Colorado is on the line. AJ, thanks for calling. What's your question today? Hey, Tim and Richard. Thanks for having me on. I was Absolutely. wondering... So there is the FEMA, Fed, uh, sorry, Federal Emergency Management Agency, and yes. they made what looks like death camps. I'm wondering if those are ever going to be used against Christians when the Third Great Awakening happens and, you know, <clears throat> we seem like a threat. <laughs> You know, that's, that's well, hold on a second, Tim. Let me get my crystal ball out. Right, no, right. I'm just kidding. Um, Go ahead. You know, one of the things that, that we have seen is there were people arguing for those who did not get vaccinated that they should be put in some of these holding camps. Uh, and I think some of that happened in Australia. And, oh, it absolutely. And other did. places, yeah. It, it, oh, it happened in other nations. It, it, it did not happen in America, but those that were advocating for it to happen in America. Mm -hmm. There were uh, some major news outlets that had commentators calling for this very thing. And then you do have examples of where just recently Hillary Clinton um, suggested that those that support Trump need to go to re-education camps. Mm -hmm. so, so these ideas are not quite as far-fetched as at, at one point in time we'd have been like, that's crazy, this is America. We would never do that in America. Uh, I, I do think right now that, and we've talked about this on, on, on Truth and Liberty before, because we are in a third great awakening, uh, and genuinely, I believe this. God is waking so many people up. But inside of the awakenings, it was not times of unity. Mm -hmm. It was times of moral clarity. It, it was times that, that truth was debated and ultimately was restored. But it, the great awakenings led to great polarization for a time. Mm -hmm. And I think in the midst of polarization, I think there are those people out there who really would want to do that kind of thing. I don't know that we will see that happen necessarily in our lifetime. And I think even as we're seeing guys like Mike Johnson be elected to the Speaker of the House, right. I, I, it gives me much more hope and optimism that we might be at a place where, where we are turning a little bit of, of the tide, right? The ship's turning just a little bit. And, you know, whether it's a reprieve, you know, whether it's one of these moments like in, in the Old Testament when God told one of the kings or some leader, like, OK, it won't come in your generation. I will give you a reprieve. But but because of all the sins you did, like judgment's going to come again, no crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't see anything like that happening in any kind of near future, uh, given how many people are waking up, which even. Even looking back on what happened early on in COVID with how many things were shut down, how many businesses were closed, um, the vaccine mandates. And earlier this year, when, when President Biden and, and KJP and even Dr. Fauci said, guys, we need to get ready for mask mandates to come back and, and we're going to have to do some new vaccines and boosters. We're going to have to mandate this again. 
the American people as a whole kind of rolled their eyes and were like, yeah, we're not playing that game again. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think the American people would be in favor of this. Even when we look at something like cancel culture, there was a new study that came out very recently that identified that the people that supported cancel culture the most were not the rising generation. It, it's not Gen Z, it was millennials. Mm -hmm. Right. Gen Z is one of the most anti-cancel culture generations. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not some really woke, crazy activism happening inside of Gen Z, but the notion of a cancel culture is not the same. And I think you would have to be fully embracing of a cancel culture to be willing to put people in some kind of camps and holding facilities and whatever else. So I don't necessarily see that happening. That's my take on it. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think I think that's really, really good. And I, I think we're a little bit away from any kind of apocalyptic thing like FEMA uh, Death camps, uh, FEMA, um, you know, concentration camps, um, not not that far away. I mean, it it could people like Hillary Clinton. I mean, how close was she to winning the Correct. presidency? Right. Correct. Uh, the d radical Democrats are in control of uh, the United States Senate. Uh, we have crazy uh, leadership in many of America's cities. Yes. So so it's it's not a bad question, AJ. Not at um, all. But 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 yeah, I agree with that as as a whole and. Um, you know, I was watching the other day uh, a movie that's been out for a long time, but I had never seen it, and it's called Contagion. We're talking about the pandemic yes. now, right? This is sort of free-flowing. Have you seen this movie? Years ago. Okay. So Contagion, 2011, 2012 is when it's made, and it's about this virus that breaks out in China, okay, spreads around the world at lightning speed. There's no cure. No one knows what to do with it. Uh, the, the, uh, the, not a villain, but sort of the, almost a villain in the movie is some blogger who finds a homeopathic cure and he's the bad guy, right? Who's the hero in the Interesting. movie? The, the hero is this woman who finds the vaccine and stops the disease. And it's, uh, it's amazing. Uh, they, even at the end of the movie, uh, they're showing this bat that flies and drops some poo or something like that in a pig trough and the pig eats it and it makes it way into a what Chinese meat market, right? All these stories that came out of the pandemic in the early stages. And I'm just like, now this cannot be right. coincidence, right. right? What's going on here? Either the COVID people got inspiration or they've been planning this thing for a long time. And this move, I don't know, but, yeah. but there's no telling AJ what the devil has in store, but I know God's not done. No, I believe that with all my heart. I believe we are in the third great awakening. And like you said, whether it's a reprieve and judgment is around the corner for the world, it could be. Yeah. But uh, right now we just need to be about the father's business. I think. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of prayer and a lot of activity. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, Let's talk about Israel while we have some time left. By the way, guys, the phone lines are open. Call in. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, what is it now? Three weeks uh, or so when Hamas invaded, uh, yeah. crossed over the border secretly with a thousand, um, you know, people kidnapped, raped, beheaded, uh, took uh, uh, hostages of men, women, and children. They yeah. still have dozens of children held hostage Correct. in Gaza. And Israel is responding. And it's really interesting to be watching the world stage right now, but let's talk about Israel for a second. In America's universities, uh, students evidently are being taught that Israel is an apartheid yes. state, that they are oppressing the Palestinians who are the rightful occupants of the land and, and on and on. W w give us a little history lesson on Israel from, you can go back to the Bible if you want, but I'm really kind of interested in 
Um, what's happened since 1948 when Israel yeah. was birthed? And who is the rightful occupant? Yes. Who has lawful sovereignty? Well, I'd like to back up a little bit because I want to add some context to even like the Palestinian idea, the Palestinian movement. Where yeah. did that come from? Because that's before 1948. Yes. Not that far before 1948, depending on how we're defining that, that kind of the, the PLO, et cetera. But if you back up, actually we can go present time to back up. So in Israel, there's about 37,000 archeological sites in Israel. It is one of the richest historical archeological places in the world, right? It's kind of like going to Rome. Somewhere you're just like, everything around here is amazing. That's Israel. Yes. Israel has so much history. Well, of those 37,000 archaeological sites, uh, about 5,000 of them pertain to biblical locations and biblical events. And to this point, they have yet to discover anything historically or archaeologically that contradicts what the Bible teaches. The reason is important. They have found the place they believe to be the Palace of David. They have found things inside that identify this is from the Palace of David, right? Just a month or so ago, as, as they completed what they think completed excavation on the pool of Siloam. They, they, they kind of knew where the steps were. They knew it was there. They just hadn't dug all the way to the bottom. And now they finished the excavation. They know this is where Jesus did miracles. The reason this matters is because th there can be no honest challenging or question that this was the Jewish homeland. Right. I mean, you, you, you cannot be intellectually honest and challenge that. Now, what's interesting is when you go forward, we know that, follow the Old Testament, the, the, the Jews go into captivity, mm -hmm. right? And there's different captivities because you have the Babylonian captivity and, and you can track through some of this. Well, then Rome comes to power. And when Rome comes to power, uh, there's two revolts. There's one in 68, 70 something uh, AD, and there's one in 132 AD. And after these revolts, the Romans put down the Jewish revolt, but then the Romans really are kind of sick of this Jewish independent revolt kind of thing. And they say, okay, we are renaming Israel. It will no longer be, and specifically it was Judea, right? Because the Jews yes. were from Judea. So they're renaming Judea. It was Israel before the divided kingdom. Then it was Judah and Israel, right? A little more of that Bible history, but it was Judea. So the Jews were from Judea. They said, we're going to rename it. And this is something that, in the history of the world, when you had nations conquer other nations, it was very common for them to rename cities after something connected to the conquering nation. Mm -hmm. But what Rome did is around 132 AD, Rome renamed Israel after the dreaded enemy of the Israelites, the Philistines. Mm. And the word they used is the word that was translated in English to Palestine or Palestine. But what's super interesting to kind of make full circle connections is if you study the Bible, the Philistines were not from that land and they weren't Arabs. The Philistines were people of the sea. It's believed the Philistines were from Greece. Mm. So when we look at the modern day Palestinians, they say, this is our land. It's always been our land. Nope. Because it was the Jewish land and then it was renamed after the Philistines who were from Greece. Mm. So that was where it got its name. However, when you have the Muslims coming into existence, right? And they're coming into power in six, seven, 800, all the way into 12 and 13, 1400, they did not call it Palestine. They called it Southern Syria. It, okay. it was not until the 1900s that there began a movement 
from Muslims living in the area that, and this is also leading into when the British, at this point, the yeah, British are the ones in control. Yeah. And, and, and the British at the end of World War II, the Jews are saying, this is our homeland, we want it back. And the Muslims said, no, we've had this land. We've always had this land. We're Palestinians and we're the Arabs and we're from this land. England was like, look, you guys figure it out. We don't want any trouble, but right now there's more Muslims. We're going to let them be in charge and control. This is where they begin for the first time in the 1900s, they begin to identify as Palestinians. But what's also worth noting is in the early 1900s, the Palestinians was not a reference to a specific people, like a, a Muslim people. It was like saying you're American. Mm -hmm. Well, saying you're American doesn't mean that you're a white European. You, right. you, you can be any color or nationality and be an American. If you're an American citizen, you're an American regardless of your race or ethnicity or nationality or religion. That's the way it was in the early 1900s Palestinian movement. There were Jewish Palestine, uh, Palestinians, there were Christian uh, Palestinians, but it's just identifying where they were from. It wasn't until you get to about the 1930s and 40s that the Muslims begin to claim exclusively, yeah. we are the only Palestinians. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and there were Jews present. There were still Jewish communities Always. in the Holy Land f even since the Roman times. Right? Always have been Jews. They didn't take 100% of every single Jew out of the land, even uh, in 70 or 138. No. And, 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 and many Jews over time had, had left that land to go try to find more freedom in other places, more security. Because what has been true historically for thousands of years is the Jewish people have been a targeted, persecuted people right. for thousands of years. Yeah. And one of the things they identified was that if, if they don't have their own land and nation, they will never be able to defend themselves against attacks. Because before they had a nation in 1948, there were Muslims, the Palestinians, who were trying to eradicate the Jewish people, said, you cannot live here, we're gonna kill you, we're gonna drive you out. And it's actually worth noting that there is a sect of Muslims that are very strong on the idea that they should kill all the Jews. Yes. That, that this is not hyperbole. There is a sect of Muslims that it's as much as we hear that Islam is a religion of peace, not for all Muslims, <laughs> right? There's a sect of Muslims that say we want to be peaceful. Okay. But for every Muslim that believes in Sharia, they're not a religion of peace. Sharia is not a religion of peace. And part of their belief is that under Sharia, you convert or you die. Mm -hmm. So you don't get to live as a Jew. You can convert to Islam or you die. Right. And this is part of how they honor also Allah. It's also worth noting in America, even at the beginning of World War II, when, when the Holocaust was already beginning to unfold, uh, there was a ship, uh, the St. Louis, that came to America. It was full of several hundred Jewish refugees. And FDR said, hey, we want nothing to do with this. We, we don't want to get involved. That's a, that's a European conflict. And it was not long after the Pearl Harbor got bombed. Yeah. And, and I really, I really, I, I can't prove this, but I really wonder and think if it wasn't God being like, hey, bro, you don't get to sit this one out, mm. right? Wow. You're going to be part of this. Well, yeah. it's also worth noting that FDR is the only president that ever was elected for four terms because every other president tried to follow the example of George Washington and said, we're only going to serve for two terms, mm -hmm. then we're going to be done. FDR said, no, like, it's really important during a war that we have some stability and consistency. I should keep being the president. So he's making himself basically the king of America. During his fourth term, he gets elected. He's not in fourth term very long at all. But Israel 
is identifying, this is after World War II, as far as European theater. European theater is wrapping down. Mm -hmm. So the Pacific theater still exists, but Israel is now saying, we want our own nation. We're going to make our own nation because we're, we don't want to be in a place that we have to rely on somebody else to defend us from another Holocaust. Right. We want right. our own nation. And FDR said, I will never recognize an, an Israeli state, an Israeli nation. Mm. A couple weeks later, he dies. Wow. Harry Truman becomes yeah. president. America was the first nation to recognize Israel as a nation. And Harry Truman- yeah, Within did, minutes of the within UN Within 11 minutes of Israel declaring their national status, Harry Truman says, we acknowledge that. Wow. So, I mean, really kind of quite remarkable. Now, all that is a buildup, 1948. Then you have the 1967, uh, six, seven day war. I don't remember. Yeah, six day. Uh, six day war. Uh, in Israel, what has been quite remarkable is not just how much they've survived, but since they've become a nation, how many times they should have been wiped out as a nation, except there were miracles that occurred that made no sense at all, right. except for the fact that there is a God. And, and, and for, for those interested, go back and, and do a little study on that six day war yeah. and, and see, I mean, incredible courage and bravery from so many of the Israeli officers and soldiers, but they were outnumbered and they were outgunned and they should have been wiped out multiple times, yeah. but God showed up and did miracles. The reason I point that out is, is going forward now, Israel is surrounded by a bunch of nations that don't seem to want them to exist anymore. And Hamas and Hezbollah hate each other, but they hate the Jews more than they hate each other. And so right now they're working together. And, and we know they're working together because Hamas is in the south at Gaza. Uh, Hezbollah is in the north and, and, and that's Lebanon. And Lebanon allowed Hamas to come and assemble in the north and attack from the north as well. Now, normally Lebanon's not allowing Hamas and their, their military age men to come in and stage and prep for operations, mm -hmm. but they're working together at this point and it's believed that Hezbollah might do a ground invasion. And if so, now Israel also is very, very talented from a military standpoint. They have very sophisticated weapons. Uh, they buy F-35s from America, but they actually remove our uh, internal technology and they put in their technology, which is superior to American technology. New and improved. <laughs> I mean, it's remarkable. They take one of the best yeah. planes, if not the best plane in the world and put it in even better technology than we have. So, so they have incredibly advanced weapon systems and technology, but there's no way, theoretically speaking, they can survive because right now, who's backing Iran? Russia. And China. And right. And China is behind all of it from a financial standpoint. And so if this happens, we are not, not unrealistically, we are on the edge of what could be World War III. And Israel's in a place where it's a very dangerous place for them. We have several friends in Israel, we've been talking to them on a daily basis. Um, some of them in, in military positions and some of them giving us briefings and just keeping us apprised how we can pray, how we can support them. And, and we've had two of them tell us that it does not look good for Israel, except Israel's never gone to war. Since they've been a nation, they've never gone to war where God didn't show up on their side. Yeah. And so what they've said is that they're very optimistic that if something happens, they know they're not fighting this battle alone, which is a very interesting perspective, seeing how big the army is. It, it, it's, it's in my mind, a little similar to when, uh, was it Elisha who had his mm -hmm. servant with them? Yes. And they're yes. surrounded. Yes. And the servant says, we can't do it. There, there yeah. are too many. And God says, Lord, open his eyes that he can see. Yeah. And his eyes are open, right? He sees all the chariots from the angels of the army of the Lord. I, I think there's something to be said for that.
yeah. um, that, that God will defend his people. Absolutely. You know, the Bible says, uh, touch not mine anointed uh, and do my prophets no harm. And, and Israel remains God's covenant people. Mm -hmm. uh, now, a lot of Christians don't believe that because they've been taught replacement theology. A, a few episodes ago, I taught on that. You guys might want to check out that video in our archives. But, but let me, uh, I know we've got a couple callers on the line and I, I'd like to give them a shot here, Tim, but real quickly, um, so, so the, the United States uh, military assets and other stuff in the region has been attacked already 13 times, I think, uh, missile attacks, a base in Syria just before correct. we went live. Just, just earlier today, there was another attack, I think that makes 14 attacks, there were five missiles on a U.S. base uh, in northeast Syria. Mm -hmm. uh, and. I think to some extent, President Biden recognizes what he did unfreezing this money to Iran was part of the funding used for this. And so the fact that we're now moving ships and, and destroyers in the region, in fact, there are even Americans that were taken hostages. Yes. So the fact that we had, had elite special forces on the ground uh, ready to conduct whatever operations need to be conducted, and we don't need to speak too much into that because uh, they yep. need to do what they need to do right, to right. rescue Americans. But the fact that now Americans are even helping intercept ballistic missiles that are coming at Israel, mm -hmm. uh, I think speaks to some extent the recognition of, of Biden's acknowledgement of his, his policy failures in the Middle East. Yeah. Because when you had Trump there, you had the Abraham Accords, things were looking so much better. Biden comes in, right, you have, I, I really think the debacle. He's, he's Obama 2.0. Yes. yes. Well, and the, the pullout of Afghanistan, showing the weakness, right? Yeah. Putting a, a arbitrary timeline that didn't need to be there, removing the military before you remove the civilians. I mean, so many strategic blunders, if they were blunders or not intentional, but yeah. let's say they're blunders, right? With that being said, um, it, is, it is a very interesting thing that America is in that place. And I think. China and Russia are cheering that we are there because we have sent so many resources to Ukraine, deplenished our supplies. Now we are in a place that we are helping defend Israel, which I think we should, but we are still deplenishing or diminishing, right? I guess, is that right? Mm -hmm. Deplenishing, is that the right yeah, word? Yeah. Our supplies. Depleting. Th there's, that's the word. Depleting our supplies. <laughs> um, words are becoming hard at this point in the day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're depleting our supplies and that makes us more vulnerable if Russia or China decided to do something on a more global scale. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is a reason to be cautious, uh, to be reserved, and to recognize the importance of, of fully funding the U.S. military so we can replenish our military supplies because one of the things the Founding Fathers recognized is one of the greatest ways to achieve peace is through strength. Yeah, absolutely. Reagan recognized that too. Well, the, we all need to keep Israel and and the United States, for a matter of fact, in our prayers. We need we do not want to be pulled into this conflict militarily. Um, I, there's reason to believe that China is actually behind the scenes on this one, pulling Agreed. the strings. Agreed. That they have orchestrated uh, not only this conflict but the war in the Ukraine mm -hmm. uh, to open up multiple fronts against the United States, so that when they decide to begin moving, that we will not have the capacity to resist right. them. Right. And so this is really uh, it's. Scary to I imagine to everyone who doesn't know the Lord, but could this be the end of the age? Could this be the preparation for what the book of Revelation talks about? That's going to have to be for another program. Yeah. I want to get to a couple of these callers here who've been hanging on for so long, Tim. Uh, we've got Karen from the great state of Washington asking a question here today. Karen, thanks for calling in. What's your question for Tim Barton today? Uh, not about Israel, but um, what seems to me is becoming an ever-widening, insidious, but ever-widening situation with this whole 
LBQ XMGY movement. <laughs> All of it, I'm getting tired of it, and it never seems to be unending and only increasing across America, state by state. More things are illegal to these people. If you are a judge in Texas, you have to marry them or whatever is happening with them, and it seems to be ever-increasing. And my question is, can you do anything about it to stand against a situation that does not seem to be ending? Uh, Karen, that's a great question, and it's an important one that we need to navigate and find an answer to. I, I would say the first couple of suggestions I would offer is recognizing the major battle is not just over human sexuality, it's a battle over truth. Because the reason that now marriage is opened up to so many groups, whoever you identify, however you identify, however many people you wanna be part of this union, it's because we, we lost the definition because we lost what truth was. We will never be able to restore a moral perspective of human sexuality or even marriage if we can't first restore some, some basic truth and basic vocabulary. And let me clarify, we first have to win the battle that boys and girls are a real thing. Because if boys and girls aren't a real thing, then marriage can't be between a man and women because men and women don't exist. Right, it, it, it's, it's subjective, it's how you identify, it's how you feel. So I think the battle is, is twofold. The battle is number one for truth, but the battle now most readily being fought over truth is a battle over this gender issue. And I think this is a very, very winnable issue. And, and this is one of the things that we consistently see uh, as examples in scripture is oftentimes the devil overplays his hand and pushes too far. Yes. And I think this is what is happening right now in America. I think it's part of why there's an awakening happening because people are realizing this is going too far. Most parents had no idea how much sexualizing of their children was happening until COVID. And when COVID happened, all of a sudden when parents, many of them for the first time ever, paid any attention on any level to their kids' education because so many parents were just trusting. And they thought, you know, school wasn't that bad when I was there, it's gotta be the same, not realizing how much it has changed that they're doing sex ed starting in kindergarten. There's not a single sexual thing about a five and a six year old. And yet we have a culture trying to sexualize them, telling them, hey, you can choose what bathroom you want to be in, choose what clothes you want to wear, what gender you want to be. This is the battle we have to win first. We have to win a battle over truth, a battle over gender, and then we begin taking steps back in the right direction. I do think one day we might be able to win a battle over marriage again, but we will never win that battle if we have not first identified that, that truth exists, words mean things, and that boys and girls are real things. So I would say right now where we should focus our energy is on the first steps of that long-term progressive battle. And I think the first steps are identifying truth does exist, words do mean things, and boys and girls are real things. I would suggest it stop, starts there, and then it's gonna be a long battle, but if we can win the battle over truth, then we can win the battle over morality in the long run. Yeah. Amen. Great, great answer. And I don't have anything to add except real quick to say that uh, strategically, uh, we have got to take over the school boards in this country. Um, we, meaning Christians, have to get involved and get elected. Um, and parents need to get active and take uh, responsibility for yeah. their kids' education. Yes. Pull them out of those home school, those uh, public schools, but remain active as citizens, taxpayers, uh, in the education system to bring accountability there. But uh, And we could go into a lot more about that. But great answer, Tim. Thank you. Let's go to Darvin uh, from Oklahoma. Uh, Darvin, you are on the line. What's your question today, sir? I was 
interested in your opinion about, in, in reference to the uh, biblical standard for punishment, uh, that should DNA be included as a quote-unquote witness for capital punishment? I, I think it's a fun question. I, I would say yes, and specifically, I would base it on the Bible verse where when Cain killed Abel, what did God tell Cain? Is that Abel's blood cries out to me of what you did. So if blood could testify in God's eyes, I would certainly think that it could testify in a modern setting. Uh, now, we could certainly go deeper in that. I'm trying to give a short answer. Richard, what yeah. do you think? Well, uh, so as a lawyer, let me chime Please. in. I'll, I'll say uh, DNA is evidence. It's not a witness. So DNA is actually um, evidence that the, that the accused has been either present in the crime scene uh, or has touched the murder weapon or touched the victim at some point in time. But there's other factors uh, that have to be proven as well, including time, uh, most, most often when was sure. the accused there, and other, other things can be uh, come into play as how do we know uh, what, what were the circumstances behind that. It could have been unrelated to the crime. So DNA is powerful, powerful evidence. Um, it's, it's most powerful in proving innocence, actually. Yes. Uh, letting, getting people um, uh, set free who've been wrongfully convicted. DNA is amazing for that purpose. Now that we can go back and test DNA and say, hey, this doesn't belong to the accused. <laughs> right, that person's uh, DNA was not under those fingernails. It's yeah, a different person. Right, exactly. Um, so, so, yeah, it's powerful evidence, but I would say it's not a witness. A witness means an eyewitness. Someone who has seen the accused, identifies them, and saw it happen can, and can describe that. Um, and so, just technically speaking, no, it's not a witness. Well, but and, and, and this evidence. is. This is, I, I mean, we're almost out of time, and I know we have another caller. I think it would be interesting, though, if you have one eyewitness, yep. but they witnessed, and then there's DNA evidence on that body, mm -hmm. on the knife, the stabbed, it's on them. So you have a witness and DNA evidence. At that point, does that, in your mind, cross the threshold of at least two witnesses? If only there's one eyewitness, but the eyewitness testified and there's DNA evidence confirming what the testimony was. What are your thoughts? Well, it, again, it's going to depend on, on proving the other elements, the time and space, stuff like that. So it can be enough if those other pieces of evidence are there, uh, no doubt about it. And in the Constitution, of course, the two witnesses rule is just for uh, treason, right? It's not for murder because that's not a crime under federal law. But uh, so we got a minute left. You want to try to get Let's this? do fast. Let's okay. Do hey, Randall, our next caller. Thanks, Darvin, for calling. Randall, you're on the line real quick now. What What's your question? Uh, are, can you speak to the fact that most of the Iranians, uh, it's mostly Iranians and Iraqis that have crossed our southern border, representative of, of other nations? Thank you. Yeah, Randall, thanks for the question. Uh, very quickly, uh, I, I do think percentage-wise of nations, uh, there is a large percentage of uh, not just those nations, Iran, but but pro-Islam uh, with uh, kind of like more ISIS terrorist connections that are crossing the southern border, but there's over 90 nations that have crossed the southern border. So we have a major border crisis, but the fact that the majority of those crossing the southern border are adult age males between 18 and 60 years old coming across by themselves and coming from nations that are hostile to America and that don't have American or biblical values, that's a major problem. Yeah, major problem. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Uh, we could talk about any one of these subjects for, for a lot more, um, but wow, this has been awesome. So Tim, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. It's been an honor, privilege, a lot of fun. Thanks to all of you for watching today. I want to remind you that we'll be back on tomorrow at 3.30 p.m. Mountain Time. Be sure to tune in. God bless you.
Thank you for joining today's Truth and Liberty livecast. You can watch today's and past livecasts in our archives at truthandliberty.net. Our goal is to educate Christians and connect them with resources and organizations to help them impact their sphere of influence. You can help us accomplish this by making a donation at truthandliberty.net slash donate. Join us next time for more Truth and Liberty.